Good morning, everyone. Boy, it's, it's great to see all of you here this morning. And certainly to be in the midst of so many shining, smiling faces, but I think it's great to be with you this morning in the midst of so many people who are so hungry, uh, who want so much to grow in their knowledge of the Lord, their love of the Lord, their service of the Lord. So thank you for that. I'm, I'm edified and inspired. Well, how much time do I have for this, by the way? Three hours? Three hours? Okay. Sorry, Cindy. <laughs> On the 27th of May, this past 27th of May, we ordained five men to the priesthood. Yay! I see at least Mrs. Conway, the mother of Father Dennis Conway, who will be assigned to um, somewhere. Dyersville, that's right, yeah. You'll find out when you get old, you forget things really. <laughs> I hope that God doesn't think us greedy when we pray for more. Um, because more is better, you know, like garlic and cooking and incense at mass. More is better, uh, but also because we have a need for more, which is why this summer we are also welcoming three priests from other countries for ministry here. Uh, two from the Archdiocese of Cape Coast, from whence comes these two sisters sitting up here, right? Can you stand? Yeah. and one from um, the, the Diocese of Chota in Peru. There is therefore good reason for identifying as one of our mission priorities here in the Archdiocese to promote vocations in general and to priesthood in particular. It's not that I don't care about vocations to religious life, but most communities, you know, they have their own vocation promotion programs. And it's kind of hard to promote, you know, the dedicated single life. And in many ways, marriage kind of takes care of itself. So I have to be responsible and interested for your sakes uh, to promote vocations to priesthood in the Archdiocese of Dubuque. Uh, this week there was a very sad and happy day. Um, Monsignor Zincula from our diocese was ordained as Bishop of Davenport. Is it happy for them, sad for us, uh, because we lose a priest. Um, and you know, it's not like we've got, oh yeah, send somebody out of the bullpen, you know, trot them out onto the field. <laughs> um, 
So for the sake of you, um, we have this as one of our mission priorities, uh, to promote vocation in general. Um, the call from God, the call to heaven, the call to holiness, the call to partner in the mission of the church, and the call to a state in life, marriage, dedicated single life, religious life, or priesthood in the Archdiocese of Dubuque. I had mentioned, actually, I, so I was at the ordination down in, in the Diocese of Davenport, and, and I said, so any seminarians for the Diocese of Davenport and any young men who are here present or watching, we welcome you to join the Archdiocese of Dubuque. <laughs> and I explained that, you know, this is like a, uh, a fleet, you know, and the archdiocese is the mothership. And so if, if the mothership goes down, the rest of the fleet is in peril. I said to all of them, so do you want that on your conscience? <laughs> I haven't had any takers thus far. I have angered a couple bishops, uh, but no takers. Well, it appears that our Holy Father, Pope Francis, has taken inspiration from us on this matter. It's always nice when he agrees with me. <laughs> As he will convoke a, a synod, a synod of bishops, in October of two, 2018, on the topic of young people, the faith, and vocational discernment. The title might sound as if three different and unrelated themes are proposed for this synod. Okay, now we've finished with young people, let's talk about the faith. Uh, but they are related. Um, they are one. For discerning, coming to know and understand, is God calling me to whatever state in life? Ordinarily, that takes place in the context of discipleship. In the context of somebody, a young person, whomever, saying, I, I know Jesus, I love Jesus, I wanna serve Jesus, and one of the ways to serve Jesus is as a married person or single, as religious or as a priest. And that discipleship, that knowledge, love, and service of the Lord is the fruit of evangelizing and catechizing, especially young people. So the Synod next year is about identifying solutions and strategies. I don't know, you know, the, the document that is, was sent out to prepare everyone for the, um, for the Synod, I'm not sure if the Holy Father wrote it or if he even read it before it was sent out. But let's say he did. The Holy Father or that document, it, it mentions this is not an easy work to do, vocational discernment. If for no other reason, because 
of the reluctance of especially young people, all apologies to any young people that are here, you know, anybody under 73, I think is. <laughs> uh, because of the, the reluctance of young people to make a choice that by its very nature excludes other choices. And believe me, uh, you can ask Father Ivan or other pastors, people involved in parish ministry, a vocation crisis is not just religious life or priesthood, uh, but also marriage. Uh, fewer people are getting married at all, to say nothing of getting married in the church. And principally because, well, when you make that choice, it's excluding other choices. You know, as if now I am blind to, to other choices. Young people want to keep their options open, you know, just in case something better comes down the pike. You know, a better offer, uh, a more fun event, uh, somebody else who's whatever, more interesting or exotic or what have you. Well, that, that mindset contrasts with the heart set. I know that's not a word. Until now, now it is a word. <laughs> it, it, that mindset contrasts with the heart set <clears throat> of a call from God to any one of the states in life. Namely, turning selfishness into selflessness. Giving the gift of self to another or to others. Any call to a state in life involves the gift of self. I give myself to you. Last week I, I had a wedding up in Fayette. And this couple, they had been dating for six years and, and you know, um, they knew each other, they loved each other. <clears throat> Hopefully they decided to get married, so one would presume. I said, now, th this is the most important part. You know, many years ago, you conceived of, you know, I want to give a gift. You might have even thought, ah, I know the gift that I want to give. You know, and so I started saving up money, setting aside to buy this gift, maybe even went and put it on layaway. I don't know, do they still have layaway in stores? Yeah. <laughs> so put it on layaway against the day when you would finally give the gift. And that's what was happening <coughs> at that marriage or, or at a religious profession or, or at a ordination. Now I'm actually giving the gift. Here, it's yours. I'm yours, all yours. This is actually, and you, I'm sure, know this to one degree or another. This is the key to a happy and fulfilled life. Some of you may have heard about the, the Grant study done by Harvard University. Anybody? 
good, then I can say whatever. And <laughs> it's a real study, believe me. Uh, um, 1938, uh, they decided to do this study. They chose about 260 some undergraduates, sophomores. And at the time, Harvard was an all-male school, and so all the, the, uh, the ones they were studying were men, so it's not like they excluded women. Uh, so for 75 years, Harvard University's researchers followed these men through their lives, measuring everything, anything imaginable that can be measured. You know, height, weight, IQ, income, you know, blah, blah, blah. All to get at the answer. It seems unscientific, especially for Harvard University, to get at the answer, what makes for a happy and fulfilled life? They wanted to, to know, okay, which one of you are happiest? So let's, all right, are you powerful? And some of these people were, were very powerful, well-known, wealthy people. And what they concluded after 75 years, a lot of time, millions of dollars, they concluded that while things like wealth and possessions and power and fame might have some factor, some contribution to somebody feeling happy or fulfilled. But it was not a constant. It was not the reason that even the participants pointed to. What they pointed to, what they concluded, was that what makes for a happy and fulfilled life are quality relationships. And they went further then to identify a quality relationship is one in which you live for another, ready to die for another. You help out, you give to, you serve, even sacrifice self for the benefit of another. And those who lived that, had those relationships, were like, they had this smile on their face where you think they might have just came back from vacation in Colorado. <laughs> Some of you have been to Colorado, I can see. <laughs> it's not Coors beer anymore, so. <laughs> but this document, or the Pope commented that no one can remain indefinitely in an undetermined state. Each person eventually has to make a choice to give the gift of self to this person or to these people or risk living a frustrated and unfulfilled life. So in the interest of accompanying young people in the process of vocational discernment, especially priesthood in the Archdiocese of Dubuque, I would like to recommend that we, all of us, be promoters and practicers 
of adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. And perhaps you all are already at least practicers, if not promoters, but if not, be both. Go back to your parish, hound your pastor. No, we demand it. Sometimes um, there are folks who say, well, you know, that's kind of old church. No, no, no it isn't. I mean, the Second Vatican Council uh, approved this whole rite for the worship of the Holy Eucharist outside of Mass. So there's a, a, a Vatican II book on this. Uh, and this is something that ha is a, uh, our Holy Father Pope Francis every evening makes a holy hour in front of the Eucharist. Kind of a Vatican II, you know, uh, current kind of guy. Or sometimes they'll say, well, it takes away from the Mass. And that's not true either. You know, a, a buddy of mine who's just moved to a new parish in, in the Diocese of Lincoln where I was ordained, um, this new parish that he went to, a parish of 500 families, uh, I don't know how many people that is, but 500 families, kind of a more or less average sized parish, they have 24-7 adoration. 24-7, every day, all day. And, and he was saying that, you know, I came here and they are the friend, this is the friend, he's my age, so he's been in a lot of different parishes. This is the friendliest parish I have ever been to. And everybody seems to be involved, and there's great participation at Mass. And I said, well, go figure. They have 24-7 adoration. It doesn't take away. It actually leads to. It's kind of like, um, you know, my family lives in California. And I go out to visit them, usually about two times a year. We practice the fish rule. You know, that family visits are like fish. Anybody familiar with that? After three days, they begin to stink. <laughs> so I never stay more than three days. But for the in-between times, in my room, up in Dubuque, I have a picture of my family. And I look at it frequently, if not daily. And that picture reminds me of my family, that picture even serves to kind of stir up or keep the flame of love alive for my family and even to inspire me to go and visit for three days. <laughs> and I can't imagine that I would ever get to the point, no, that's enough. I'll just look at the picture. I don't need to be in their presence and commune with them. It's the same with adoration. It doesn't take away. It leads to, it creates this desire. I want to get, be in, in this holy exchange of gifts with Jesus at Holy Mass. Jesus given to me, me receiving, giving back to Jesus. I want, I want Jesus in me. 
and I want to be in Jesus. I want the lines between me and God to be blurred. This, you know, in, in the reception of Holy Communion, which is, as the church teaches, a foretaste of eternity. Here's an hors d'oeuvre. Here's something to whet your appetite. This is a pledge, the church says, a pledge of eternity. You receive this communion now. You and God, God and you, lines between you and God blurred. You know, my God and I, said the poet laureate in Nebraska, my God and I shall interknit as rain and ocean, breath and air. How can you distinguish between my breath and air? That that we receive in Holy Communion, that's a pledge for the fullness, the perfect, the complete union with God in heaven. So it doesn't take away, but rather, I want to go. It's not uncommon in places where there is a practice of Eucharistic adoration, where you have a growing, growing number of people even celebrating Holy Mass on a daily basis. I want this every day. We can pray anywhere, truly anywhere, but praying in a Catholic church is special. It is a house of prayer. In most cases, the, the architecture and the art are all, they, they, they conspire in order to, to lead our eyes and our minds and our hearts forward and upward to God. Its atmosphere of silence makes prayer easier. And it has a tabernacle. A tabernacle. I don't want to offend anybody uh, by explaining what that is, but you know, as an old teacher, I've learned presume nothing. And, you know, I, I remember my own experience. I did not know what a tabernacle was until I was in college. Uh, my dad was in the military. We lived on bases. Most bases had a chapel, but it was shared with Jews and Protestants, and so there were no statues or stations or crucifixes or tabernacles. I do remember, we came in and, you know, we would genuflect. Uh, one base we lived at, we, we had mass in the movie theater. And we'd come in and, you know, genuflect. I had no idea what a genuflection was. I thought this is the way my dad said, we're going to sit in this row this week, you know. Yeah, sweet. That's <laughs> way Catholics point. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Remember one time I was in college and I went to a movie with my buddies. I won't tell you which movie. <laughs> I don't have to go any further, do I? Yeah. <laughs> And so I thought while I was down there, I went, okay, save yourself, you know, I'd tie my shoes, but I was wearing sandals. So, <laughs> so the tabernacle is that, that locked box. 
usually found in the front of the church. And the Holy Eucharist is placed there after Mass so that it could be taken to, to those who are sick in hospital or homebound or anybody who's unable to come to Mass and kept there in order to inspire devotion and to be the object of our prayer. To be clear, the object of our prayer is not the tabernacle. The object of our prayer is what it contains, the Holy Eucharist, also called the Blessed Sacrament, the real presence of the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the crucified and risen Lord. The presence of Jesus kept in the tabernacle, that's why we genuflect, which comes from two Latin words, to bend the knee, to flectus, to bend your genus, your knee. That's why we genuflect when we come into a Catholic church. That's why we go there to pray. There are different ways that we can foster, you know, fuel our devotion to Jesus present in the Blessed Sacrament. Maybe some of you do this. Um, when I drive by a church, you know, I'll bow my head or make the sign of the cross. To me, it's a, I know you're in there. Yeah. It's like my mom, I know you're in there. <laughs> I know you're in there. And while I might not be able to stop and spend a moment with you, I acknowledge your presence. I glorify your presence. Sometimes we're even able to, you know, as we, oh, I'll stop for a moment, or maybe even intentionally, to stop in for just a moment, just a short prayer. You know, I, I, I live in our little um, college seminary, and it's uh, right down the hall, it's connected to our chancery. And so sometimes just to get up from the chair or out of my office, I'll walk down the hallway all the way from, I'm on one end and on the opposite end is the chapel. Um, beautiful chapel. It used to be the presentation sister's mother house, that, that building. And, and so it was their mother house chapel. Uh, it's a beautiful chapel. And, and sometimes I'll just go in and I'll genuflect and then turn around and walk back. That's enough. I, I adore you. Maybe to kneel down for a moment and, and to pray for a special intention. For example, an increase of vocations to the priesthood. <laughs> or to say sorry for our sins. Or to thank God for some favor received. Or to say, I love you. Or we can go there and spend a longer time in prayer, sitting or kneeling in the presence of the Holy Eucharist kept in the tabernacle. 
And sometimes, as happens just down the hallway here, sometimes the Holy Eucharist is taken out, taken out of the tabernacle and placed in a vessel called a monstrance, not monster, but monstrance comes from a Latin word meaning to show so that the consecrated host can be seen. Usually when people talk about Eucharistic adoration, that's what they're talking about. This buddy of mine, the 24-7 adoration, that's what they're talking about. This, this parish has a, like here, has a special chapel just for their adoration program. Um, this devotion is very attractive to people and, and especially to young people. Um, I've, I've not experienced it myself, but people talk about, they come back from like World Youth Day or NCYC and they talk about one evening is always uh, kind of earmarked or devoted to this, they, they have adoration. And so you could have tens or hundreds of thousands or millions of people, young people, all eyes turn towards the monstrance in which there is the, the consecrated host, the blessed sacrament, the real presence of the risen and glorified Lord. Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of young people, you know, much like yourselves, you know, and, <laughs> and silence. There is something very attractive. Remember when I was in the Diocese of Wichita and I was given a talk somewhere and this mother came up, or, well, I didn't know she was a mother at that time, but this woman came up and she was all in tears and I thought, oh gosh, what did I do? You know? <laughs> so I was you know, getting ready for some way in which I offended. I, I'm sure I, I do it many times every day. So, But she wanted to share with me that her teenage son, I think he was a junior, had uh, come back from this kind of camp, summer camp uh, in, in the parish. It's called Prayer in Action where the young people are, are led to, here's how you pray the liturgy of the hours. Here's how you pray the rosary. Here's how you pray in Eucharistic adoration. And then combined with that, they also like rake leaves or paint houses or whatever is needed. And he came home and she was at this conference where I was speaking and he called her and he said, is it okay, Mom, if, if I go down to, to the parish and, and spend some time in adoration? <laughs> and she was weeping. You know, Where did that come from? Whatever it was, do it again, do it some more. You know. There's something attractive about it. Some suggest it's on account of the silence involved. Some on account of the solitude. You know, uh, 
you don't look like you're old enough to remember the, the church and its worship before the Second Vatican Council. But, you know, there was, there was a great practice among the, the faithful of devotions, like adoration. And it was explained because, well, people felt so um, uninvolved, let's say, with the Mass. Um, they really didn't have to say anything or do anything. It was mostly, you know, if the priest, if the altar boys, and I was one of them, if the altar boys made the responses, that's, that was enough for validity and laicity. And so there was a, this upsurge of devotion where people could be more, whatever, plugged in. So now, you know, in our celebration of Holy Mass, there's all kinds of, you know, singing, talking, plugging in. And so what explains this attraction? Because there's silence. And there's this, this notion, which is as legitimate as the communal notion of our Eucharistic assembly, but this notion of me and Jesus. It's very, if you've practiced it, Eucharistic adoration, you know how intensely personal, even intimate, that prayer is or, or can be. Uh, as a young priest, uh, I was in the cathedral parish in Lincoln that had um, perpetual adoration. And you know, I, I had to take the hours that nobody wanted to take or so it was like two or three in the morning and and so I came over one time at like three in the morning and the, there was a man who had the hour in front of me and I walked in he's reading the paper you know <laughs> so it has the potential <laughs> to be very personal and intimate and I think, it's my opinion, and so therefore it's very true. <laughs> I think this comes, the attraction, the silence, the solitude, the personal intimate nature of it comes from the act of looking. Now recall the scripture passage, it's recorded in, in Mark's gospel at least, maybe in one of the others as well. Jesus goes out into the wilderness. This great multitude of people followed him out into the wilderness. And, and you know, they were, I don't know what a multitude is, you know, 27 people. I think that's what a multitude is defined as. So there were 27 people out there. And it, the gospel records that Jesus looked on them with love. They were like sheep without a shepherd. But they were looking at Jesus. I mean, they had come out into the wilderness because of Jesus. To look at him, to listen to him, to learn from him, to the act of looking. Where Jesus, in, in, whether it's in that passage or in adoration, where Jesus looks with love at the people who seek him out and look with love to him 
in their need. At adoration, Jesus looks at us, lost as we are, wounded, hungry, needful, sinful, whatever it may be. People looking for love in all the wrong places. It's a country western song. And like those people in the gospel at adoration, we look to Jesus. That looking, that can be an unspoken prayer of longing, you know, like a puppy or, or, or a child, you know, looking, please. They don't even have to say please, it just it's expressed in that looking. A looking that is a plea for help. Or looking so as to study, you know. Hmm. What's he about, you know? To study so as to know and perhaps to love and serve. While we don't actually see the face of Jesus when we look at the Blessed Sacrament exposed in the, in the monstrance, or if you do, please talk to me afterwards. We'll, we'll get you lined up with those little pills that'll they help. <laughs> While we don't actually see the face of Jesus, it could be said that that Eucharist exposed in the monstrance is a picture of the life and the message of Jesus. This is a picture of the abasement, which is not that room, you know, underneath your house, abasement or the, you, the humbling, the, the humility of God, who shed the glory of his divinity, coming to us because we could not go to him. The further abasement or humility of God, Jesus' body given up for us, his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. His life ending the way he lived it. Living for, dying for, giving to, helping out, serving, even sacrificing. A picture of abasement or humility again as Jesus offers himself to us as food and drink that we might survive and thrive. Food and drink to gladden us. Food and drink that even enables us to become one with him. Giving us a pledge of eternal communion with God from which we take rest, which, has, which comes from having all of our hungers quieted. A picture of even further abasement or humility. Jesus continuing to dwell among us, yes, in the poor, yes, where two or three are gathered in his name, but also in the Blessed Sacrament, waiting for us to serve him in the poor, to worship him at Holy Mass, and to adore him in the Eucharist. 
It is a picture too, I think, when you look at the Eucharist, of the holiness to which Jesus calls his followers. To be the last of all, the servant of all, to take up our own cross of sacrifice, responding to the needs of others regardless of who it is, whether or not they're deserving. Did they ask nicely? Are they aware of the cost to me? Did they say thank you? Doesn't matter. The holiness to which we are called. So what's the effect of spending time in adoration? What's the effect of looking at Jesus in the Eucharist. Ultimately, I think it is to make us look like him, be like him. The first time that I ever was at Eucharistic adoration and saw a monstrance was shortly before I entered the seminary. And at that time, I will confess, I only had a very, very vague notion of what was in the monstrance. And so I very easily became distracted by the shape of the monstrance, which looked to me like those handheld mirrors that my sisters all had in order to primp with. You know, the kind that has a handle and then, you know, so. So I was there thinking of my sisters and remembering how they used to make us late because they were always primping and wondering what they're doing now. <clears throat> but my thinking of the monstrance as like a mirror got filled out as I learned more about the Eucharist. And so my thoughts started going more to the Blessed Sacrament as the reflective surface of the mirror. I contemplated Jesus as the reflection of God's glory and the exact representation of God's very being, as Jesus is described in the letter to the Hebrews. I saw the abasement and the love of Jesus reflected in the host, and I asked myself if I could see myself reflected there, mirroring the gift of self like that lived by Jesus. Or if indeed I reflected Jesus' gift of self in my dealings with others. And in adoration, if it ever seems like seeing myself reflected in Jesus or reflecting Jesus to others, if I ever felt, saw that it was a bit distorted, it was hard for people to see Jesus, that I wasn't reflecting very well Jesus, then I wanted and tried to clear up that image to make it sharper. So, when the act of looking in Eucharistic adoration is combined with the act of receiving Holy Communion, 
There is unleashed the potential to do as Jesus did, to give the gift of self, to give it in worship at Holy Mass, to give it in service to the poor, and to give it to another or others by embracing and living one state in life. I've seen the evidence of this. I've seen the evidence of it. Let me conclude. <laughs> the host, sacred host, the consecrated host that's reserved in the tabernacle for prayer, placed in the monstrance for adoration, should, according to the teachings of the church, be periodically replaced and consumed. This follows from our belief that the Holy Eucharist is ultimately and essentially food. It's meant to be consumed. I think it was this past Sunday we had the gospel. Take this, eat this, drink this. Unless you eat, unless you drink, you have no life in you. It isn't enough, just isn't that a lovely thing? <laughs> eat it, drink it, consume it. Consume it. I think that that is also the ultimate and essential end, just like the Eucharist, it is the ultimate and essential end of Jesus' followers, to be consumed by Christ. Or as St. Paul put it, to be grasped by Christ, to be taken captive by God to do his will. We are brought to this point we're brought to this desire by spending time in adoration of the Blessed Sacrament and thereby growing in the desire to worship, to receive Holy Communion, to serve Jesus and the poor, and to say yes to God's plan. You cannot draw near to the fire of divine love and not be singed, if not consumed, by it. St. Catherine of Siena warned of this in her book entitled Dialogue. What heart can defend itself and not burst to see greatness humbling itself to the lowliness of humanity? Let me conclude by sharing with you the question and answer exchange used in the, the ceremony for the reception of new members into a group called the Nocturnal Adoration Society. I'd never heard of it before until uh, well, I was in Wichita and there's a large Hispanic community there and this is very common, very popular among Hispanics. It's a society where, whose members spend the night, pass the night in adoration of the Eucharist. And so the initiation or the reception of new members has this script. 
Why do you wish to become a member of the Nocturnal Adoration Society? The answer, because I have come to know the love of God, shown forth in Jesus and celebrated in the Eucharist, and I wish to respond to God's gift with the gift of my love. Question, how do you intend to do this? Answer, I wish to make Jesus and the Eucharist the center of my life, to participate in the celebration of Holy Mass, to prolong the grace of the Eucharist in my prayer, especially in fidelity to my hour of adoration, and to proclaim and extend Christ's love in the witness of my daily life. Amen to that. Thank you very much.